0: Hello and welcome to another Lockdown edition of Order Order, Mail Plus Radio's politics podcast. With me,
1: Simon Walters, Assistant Editor of the Daily Mail. And me, Amanda Plattel, columnist for the Daily Mail, in my house in North London in lockdown for the third month. Coming up, Government Minister Nadeem Zahawi denies its farcical that children can go to the zoo now, but they can't go to school until September. The difference
2: between safari parks and uh, zoos is they are outdoor environments. And Tory MP Alex Shelbrook says if you're going to tear down the statues
0: of slavers, you might just as well add one or two other controversial political figures
3: to the list. Where do we start to draw the line on this? Should we then take down the statue of Karl Marx in, in Highgate? Because he may not have murdered millions of people, but in his name, Stalin murdered millions of people. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast
0: on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify, or leave us a review and email us at any time at orderorder at mailplus.co.uk Well, it's been a pretty epic week politically, particularly with the, with the strong feelings aroused in these Black Lives Matter protests, which, which have arrived in Britain, with the tearing down of a statue, the removing of another but I think you feel that one voice has been conspicuously absent in this debate, don't
1: you, Amanda? Yeah, I certainly do, Simon. And where's Boris? As it happens, we haven't seen him since last week at PMQ's. And he did the most ludicrous thing during the height of you know the of the protests where tens of thousands of people were congregating all over the country. He did a Donald Trump and he sent a tweet. And then a couple of days later he did a pre-recorded video for The Voice, which is a, a big ethnic newspaper. You know, we have not actually seen this man leading this country during what is now a double crisis. It's not just the Black Lives Matter off the back of George Floyd. It's the fact that we've got the whole country. We've got complete chaos over this ridiculous quarantine system, the airports. The whole thing is just a mess. As, as, you know, we said before, you can go to the zoo and the pubs are going to be open sooner than the schools are. Well, and I think Boris has not appeared. He has not physically appeared before the nation, and he thinks he's a great Chilean. he thinks he's a great wartime and peacetime leader. Well, I'm afraid he's he's pretty wanting at the moment, or maybe Simon is just not very well.
0: Well, I don't know about that, but I, I do think that Priti Patel has actually showed in the way, because I think her she made a fairly robust response to the tearing down of the statue in Bristol, um, spoke to the local police chief there, and I think she's been she been much maligned, uh, probably including by us once or twice. <laughs> you, not months. me. <laughs> yes, uh, I think she showed a bit of guts in all this, and th- and there was a striking exchange between her in and the Labour MP in the Commons this week.
4: I'm really saddened that the Honourable Lady has effectively said that this government doesn't understand um, racial inequality. <laughs> Well, on that basis, Madam Deputy Speaker, it must have been a very different Home Secretary who, as a child, was frequently called a paki in the playground. Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
4: exactly. A very different Home Secretary who was racially abused in the streets, or even advised to drop her surname and use her husband's in order to advance her career. Yeah, exactly. A different Home Secretary recently characterised, if Madam Deputy Speaker I can say so, in the Guardian newspaper as a fat cow with a ring through its nose. Something that was not only racist but offensive both culturally and religiously. This is hardly an example of respect, equality, tolerance or fairness. So when it comes to racism, sexism, tolerance or social justice, I will not take lectures from the other side of the house. I have already said repeatedly, there is no place for racism in our country or in society. And sadly, too many people are too willing, too casually, to dismiss the contributions of those who don't necessarily conform to preconceived views or ideas about how ethnic minorities should behave or think. This, Madam Deputy Speaker, in my view, is racist in itself.
0: Well, I I think for once, Priti Patel has put things far more eloquently than I ever could. And that was her fairly sharp response in the House of Commons to a Labour MP, Florence Eshalomi. I think going back to what you said about Boris, I just wonder whether Boris has lost a bit of authority because if you think about it, Amanda, Dominic Cummings clearly broke the lockdown rules in effect and was kind of let off by Boris because he's his Downing Street advisor. Having done that um, for supposedly letting Cummings follow his instinct, it's more difficult, I think, to condemn protesters tearing down
1: statues of slavers. They can argue they're just following their instinct. Of course they can. We always knew that this is, um, it was just going to be a ticking time bomb, the, the coming story, because everybody who just wants to do what they think is right now has, they're morally well, okay to yes. do it. Got, yeah, just whatever you feel like doing. But pretty's brilliant. Um, I, I must say, she's really stepped up in my um, admiration for her, because as a former spin doctor, I know what it's like, and you see it with the likes of Matt Hancock and and the rest of Boris's cronies, uh, is that they're scripted. They go onto TV and they've got a line to take, and they repeat it three or four times so that the clip goes on TV. Pretty spoke from the heart, um, and she has, unlike a lot of them, she has a really unerring instinct for for middle England, middle Britain, for for ordinary folk which is, I'm afraid, sadly absent from from the top level of of the government. But she was just great. And she spoke, you know, that was a fantastic speech. It was just fantastic.
0: Business Minister Nadim Zahawi denies claims that the government deserves six of the best for making a hash of attempts to reopen schools before the summer holidays. He says it's doing everything it can to stop children from underprivileged backgrounds falling further behind. And he says at least from now on, they can visit a zoo or safari park to learn about the environment. Isn't it a complete farce that we are now able to visit zoos, safari parks and drive-in cinemas, but children aren't going to be back at school until September?
2: The difference uh, between safari parks and uh, zoos is they are outdoor environments, and the science, the scientists, SAGE committee tell us that uh, the virus uh, doesn't actually transmit as effectively outdoors as it does indoors, so it's a much safer environment, which is why we are announcing that we're opening zoos and safari parks to allow parents and children one, to have other outdoor uh, places to visit and to uh, learn about uh, animals uh, uh, and the environment. Yeah, I get all all
0: that, but the contrast between that and not having schools open until September for most parents
2: Right, so it's it's worth just reminding ourselves that we got uh, early years open and we got uh, reception class and year one and year six open in primary schools. Our ambition was to get all classes, all years open uh, for at least a month uh, before the summer holidays. Working with teachers, um, they very quickly came back and said in primary schools, some primary schools are just unable to because they haven't got the facilities to be able to do that. Some will. Some will work with the local authority, they'll use local uh, uh, halls, local facilities to be able to, to open more classrooms and more year groups. What some people are saying is, you, you, you built
0: Nightingale hospitals uh, for the NHS to cope with COVID. Why can't you build
2: Nightingale schools to get the kids back at, back behind their desks? Well, well, first of all, um, to build very large hospitals and to build, you know, one, two, three, ten of them uh, is a very different proposition uh, to then you know, be able to build lots and lots and lots of thousands. Well, of yes, but come schools. on, Nadine.
0: You're a businessman. You are very, yeah. very innovative and creative. You could get um, disused hotels, well, tell um, you what we did. community tell you
2: halls. What... I tell you what we did. So community halls are, 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 you know, some schools who have that that ability and that access are doing that. That's the whole point. Eighty percent of them stayed open because ultimately we want to have every child back at school in September. The worst <laughs> of all, well, Simon is if we go too fast. Last week, we we're being criticised for going way too fast. And there were voices in, in in the opposition party saying, you know, you really should slow down opening up schools. Um, this week, they're saying you're going too slowly because we said we won't compel all primary schools to open every classroom and every year group. We want to work with them. to see. And which been, been
1: to been,
0: the, the government's been all over the place on this because a few weeks ago, Gavin Williamson was ordering schools to come back in full behind summer. Now he's had to do a U-turn. He's basically
2: caved into the unions and, 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 and given them what they want. No, I don't agree. I don't agree at all. What, what what Gavin has done is basically focused on the most vulnerable, that £100 million, very much focused on getting um, education to those children who are most vulnerable, Yeah, you know, young, uh, white boys. Uh, boys and girls from ethnic uh, minorities, specific ethnic minorities, and of course the children in need, um, which is what schools remained open for. Uh, And what we are doing now is making sure that by September, all schools will reopen. The worst of all worlds is you go too fast, right? The system can't cope. Teachers said to us, look, you you know, some primary schools just do not have the facilities to be able to open every classroom, Uh, and the worst of all worlds is we go too fast and the virus spikes and we have to shut down schools again or shut down the economy, as some other countries have had to. South Korea, uh, a couple of weeks ago, had to close schools again. That is a very bad place to end up, which is why we're deliberately being careful and Gavin's doing the right thing here. But but uh, th- there's a danger here, isn't there? With this,
0: this means that some children won't have had any schooling for six months. Isn't there a danger that we're going to be left with what was effectively like a coronavirus generation, a C generation of children who have missed half a year of education, and the ones who have missed out the most will be those at the lower end, the working class kids, a lot of them who haven't got access to computers, and that this is going to be a problem for. Years
2: and decades to come, they're going to be scarred. Well, first of all, that is why we kept 80% of schools open for uh, precisely those children and the children of key workers um, and we invested 100 million for precisely that purpose to get those children who can't have a laptop because they can't afford it, or an iPad, or don't have internet connection at home, we've connected them so we can deliver that online education to them. And you're absolutely right. I was the Children and Families Minister, so you know I I saw uh, what happens to children in need in terms of educational outcomes, and if you don't get that education to them very early on and try and close the gap in the early years, the gap just gets bigger and bigger as they go through the education system and become adults.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I do a bit of volunteering at a local school, and I was there on Monday this week, and there was only 20 children came back. Uh, it was a very small number, but I, I feel sorry for the schools, because having, having having seen it, with the social distancing of two metres, you just can't get the kids in the classroom, and the schools have only got a certain number of classrooms. It's very, very difficult for, for, for to see a way around this, unless they reduce the social distancing from two metres to, say, course. one metre. That, that yep. would change things. But yep. but um, until they do that, I don't think you're going to
1: get schools back in full till long after September. Well, you've got a huge problem, is that you just do the maths. You know, if you used to have 30 kids in a classroom and now you've got 15, it means you need to double the teachers, And the the government is just, you know, um, that was a very heroic attempt to defend their position, but they've just completely messed this up from start to finish. And And it really makes me cross when they say, when you hear them saying like that, oh, we put £100 million in to help these disadvantaged kids. We had today, I was listening to um, Michael Wilshaw, who was, he's the guy who set up the Mossbourne Academy in Hackney, which was one of the first academies. At the time, 16 years ago, it was the worst performing school, not just in Britain, but the whole of Europe. And he dragged that school out from one of the most deprived, mixed background areas, the whole of this country. And it's now one of the high performing schools. And he said, we have just condemned a generation of poor, white, black, Asian kids, all of them, their education now is is ruined. You can't just take out six months and expect them to sit exams. And I think that, you know, the government is just in a mess over this. It just, I wish there was something, Simon, we could point to, that the government isn't in a mess over, that it isn't giving mixed messages about. But I just feel so sorry for those kids. They're never going to get it back. And as a father of six, you think Boris should have a, a close interest in this? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but he's got a lot of money and his kids will be, if they will, none of them are in education. Oh, actually, two of them might be. Yeah, <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> but, we, you know, we're not talking about um, people who, you know, Oxbridge educated, you know, wealthy people who um, can look after their own kids, homeschooling them. You know, it's not like that. It's, it's just totally, it's so ignorant of the circumstances that so many really poor kids live in. And it's going to be a tragedy. Tory MP Alex Shelbrook is worried that the Black Lives Matter protests in Britain are getting out of hand. He says mobs cannot be allowed to rip down statues and argues that the best way to teach people about the evils of slavery is to leave the statues where they are as a permanent reminder.
3: What I worry about is losing the lessons of history. And I heard um, an interview this morning on the radio um, talking about the Rhodes statue at Oxford. There was a peaceful protest yesterday about taking it down. And the interviewer said that when he had been there last year, many didn't know where the statue was. And the interviewee who was saying that it should come down said, well, lots of students know where it is now and they know what he did and that's a good thing. And, and really that's my point is that would they have known what he did? Would they have understood the history of it if there wasn't that statue to spark conversation? You don't have to agree or support their actions, but what you do do is keep history alive and get people discussing that history, why it was wrong, why it's not acceptable today. And if we are going to delete everything, um, How do we learn? How do we move forward as a society? But tragically, what's happened with the infiltration of violence and criminality um, and an obscured political view by people who basically want to cause anarchy is that the key and core messages that the peaceful protesters were trying to put out are being lost. They're being completely lost. You know, if we take it a step further, Simon, um, the attack on the statue of Robert Peel, um, saying that he um, was a slave. Well, that was his father. Yeah. Um, and, and they're saying, well, even so, you know, he, he should be linked. It should come down. Well, where do we start to draw the line on this? Should we then take down the statue of Karl Marx um, in in Highgate? Um, because he may not have murdered millions of people, but his, um, in his name, Stalin murdered millions of people. So are we gonna hide are we going to hide this history or are we going to say you do not, absolutely do not have to support it or agree with it? In fact, you probably as society develops by arguing against it. But if you haven't got that trigger there to start the conversation, how does the conversation start?
0: And Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, in an interview with Kay Burley of Sky TV. Uh, said he was going to have a review of street names, statues, and all manner of other things which commemorate slavers in London. We've got to recognise
1: uh, that our public realm, statues, squares, street names, doesn't really reflect uh, the society we live in in 2020. And so, what the commission will do is look at diversity in the public realm in relation to the lack of black people who are on statues or streets named after our LGBTQ community women, those who are disabled, and try and have a city that better reflects uh, London and the values we have.
0: I mean, this is a really tricky debate, isn't it, Amanda, because you can understand the the sensitivity of black people to seeing statues, monuments dedicated to people who, who not only defended slavery, but tried to stop it being abolished. It's hard to defend that. On the other hand, you can't possibly have mob rule and just crowds ripping down statues. It's got to be done in a democratic, calm, peaceful way, and in a way which doesn't just rip our entire history to pieces
1: what what do you make of it? I know I look, I totally agree, Simon. and And when you look at <laughs> there should be normal regional, democratic ways in which these statues can be taken down, if it's the consensus, the democratic consensus of that area. For instance, in Bristol, where the statue was pulled down and thrown in the river, um, they had a petition was got up by a, a bunch of uh, people who were very offended by it. Only eleven thousand people in that whole city signed it. So what you've actually got is you've got, as you say, it's mob rule. It's a tiny number who are behaving really badly. It's drowning out the key message of, of, of what's come after, you know, the terrible death of George Floyd. But I've got to say, I love Sadiq Khan's idea about changing all the names. And, really? And when I, yeah. We're having a battle in the street at the moment as to whether or not we call it Mandela Mount or Martin Luther King Mount. It's mm. divided at the moment with all five residents who live here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but I, I think that, that there is a danger of it, of it, of it getting, out of, getting out of control. I mean, for example, there, some of the protesters have called for a statue of uh, Sir Robert Peel, former British Prime Minister, founder of the Modern Police Service, to be taken down on the basis that his father was a defender of the slave trade,
1: which and is Simon, absurd. Where, where does it end? Does that mean that former miners can rip down a statue of Margaret Thatcher because they believe that she you know, caused great injury to their community? There has to be some common sense. I'm just hoping that people are very inflamed at the moment and you've got a number of opp- opportunistic people who are driving this reckless abuse of the police, abuse of the law. It's a minority, but we can't let them win. This is a democracy.
0: Well, Amanda, you're just round the corner from Highgate Cemetery, so if anyone's going to tear down Karl (laughs) Marx's statue, I imagine it might be you.
1: I'm on my way there now, and I'm I'm wearing my Bob Marley t-shirt, which is "Love Rastafari." So I think I'll go up there with this on, eh? Mm. No woman, no cry, but everyone will be crying (laughs) if you
0: start singing.
1: I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing. Which brings us to my topical tune of the week, Simon, which I know you're going to edit out. Oh, no. Okay, and I'm going to sing it. My music teacher says I can just about get this right. Okay, it's quite brief. You say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we'd all love to change the world. But when you talk about, I get this bit wrong, but when you talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out? John Lennon.
0: Yes, well, count, count me out of those wanting to listen to that <laughs> for a second time.
1: <laughs> now, Simon, do you have something to compete with that? Because um, uh, I think our listeners will now realize that, that there is a fierce um, topical tune battle going on between me and Simon. And I think um, up to now, I'm in the lead. Yeah, Comments, I, I, please. So what, what, this- what unknown dirge have you got for us today? Yeah, my topical
0: tune is by um, Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney, who clearly can't possibly compete with your singing. Um, (laughs) And it is, of course, Ebony and Ivory. Oh, great Um, choice. It's 38 years ago that that, that song was in the charts. And yeah, and it's it's got a wonderful origin because there's an expression which goes back about 100 or 200 years. And someone once said that on the piano... You have black notes and white notes, and you need to play them both to make a perfect harmony, which is the origin of the song written by Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney. And it was banned in South Africa, can you believe, at the time? No. Yeah, Mandela was was still in jail. And uh, I think the lyrics say, all we need to know about the current crisis we're in, we all know that people are the same wherever you go, there's good and bad in everyone. We learn to live, when we learn to give each other what we need to survive, together alive.
1: Okay, can you just, uh, I think we should cut that bit, and I think you should sing it. No. Simon, you've got a beautiful voice. It's almost as good as mine. <laughs> no, we can't, we can't. You could I mean, you, sing You're, it. you're It'd the be so thing. much better if you sing it.
0: I need my agent here.
1: Oh, sing it, sing it. Make me happy. I'm having a miserable day.
0: I've got, I've got the lockdown blues. We all know that people are the same wherever you go. There is good and bad,
1: and everyone. That's great. Mine was better.
3: We learn to give each other what we need to survive.
0: Okay, so we now need to do the outro. Okay.
1: Okay. Hold on, I've got to find it. This is the bit where I say I'm Amanda Platel.
0: Yeah. You need the script.
1: Okay. <laughs> My one line script. I've got it. Well,
0: that's all we got time for this week. Don't forget, you'll be able to listen back to this and all our other MailPlus radio podcasts at mailplus.co.uk, or via Spotify
1: and Apple Podcasts. And join us next week for more political chat and wonderful singing from me. Mm, But for (laughs) now, that's all from me,
0: Simon Walters.
1: And from me, Amanda Platel. Three, two, one. Good, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.